0: Hello, everyone,
1: and welcome to this episode of our 7investing podcast. I'm 7investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. I am joined by my colleague, 7investing lead advisor, Anirban Mahanti. Uh Anirban, good afternoon to you down in Sydney, Australia. Good evening to you. <laughs> and it is good evening for me in Texas. We are also joined by uh, another time zone represented <laughs> in the globe. Where we've been chatting a lot about international investing Lately. And we thought that this would be just such a, a great opportunity and exciting chance to catch up with a good friend of ours, uh, Chen, down in Singapore. Uh, Chen is the head of investing for the Smart Investor Service out there that's looking at growth stocks, dividend stocks, a whole bunch of different types of investing. Uh, Chen, thanks very much for joining us on the 7investing
0: podcast here. Hi, hey everyone. Glad to be here. Chen, we really want to
1: kind of chat about how it's it's different in Singapore and in Southeast Mm -hmm. Asia and China, just how the companies are a little different down there, maybe how the investing is different in different parts of the world from where Mm -hmm. we are. Can can I start you with the first question of what is it like for consumers in Southeast Mm -hmm. Asia? How are they different than they are here in the United States
0: or in Australia? (laughs) Well, uh, I think the first thing you can say is there's no such thing as an Asian consumer, Uh, even... I think within Asia, if you look at Japan or Korea or in Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, uh, India, China, these are all very different sets of consumers. So uh, I spent 20 years of my life in Malaysia and the next half of my life in Singapore, right? And I can say that even between two countries where you can literally walk across, right? I, I, I used to walk across to Malaysia. It takes about 15 minutes. You can't do that now, uh, but uh Even then, uh, these two countries uh, are very different in terms of demographics, uh, religion, uh, spending power, uh, political systems and so on. So I I would say that uh, C Limited probably has, is a very good example where um, they were able to sort of push back and and even though they started late within Southeast Asia with Shopee, the e-commerce site, they were able to actually dominate within Southeast Asia because uh, Lazada, which is backed by Alibaba, is, is more. Uh, I, I would say they're they're more uh, used to or experienced in, in managing large populations and, and large deliveries. But when you come to Southeast Asia, there's there's a difference between uh, China and Southeast Asia, where uh, there's so many different cultures, uh, languages, demographics, and uh, I, I think that's why Shop uh, C is winning over Lazada. Yeah, that's
1: perfect. And, and, I mean. Oh, go ahead, Anirvan, yeah. No, 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 go ahead. You go ahead, please. I just wanted to follow up with that and ask about uh, you know, regional monopolies. You said there's so many different cultures, different countries, different languages. Mm-hmm. E-commerce is, is kind of, we see it as winner-take-all. I mean, in the United States, we've definitely seen mm-hmm. Amazon rise to dominance here. Is, do you see regional monopolies in e-commerce in Southeast Asia emerging too on a, on a country-by-country mm-hmm. basis? I,
0: I would say it's more country-by-country basis. I, I don't think that uh, any country any sort of e-commerce platform can claim that they are the e-commerce dominant e-commerce player within Southeast Asia. It's probably better defined as uh, the dominant e-commerce player in Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines, and uh, what's the last one? Vietnam, which are the three or or four major countries with the most population within the Southeast Asia region. Uh, Most of them tend to be headquartered in Singapore, but... uh, those are the four countries with the most population. I, I think the dominance tends to be uh, focused by country rather than by region. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, C Limited actually were dominant. It's, it's part of their DNA to actually localize based on that country.
2: Excellent. I was gonna you know
0: follow through on so
2: this the consumer trend. And uh, you know you already mentioned that consumers are different. Um, what, what I'm interested in understanding is so if you know you are doing this via Zoom, and a lot of these things are happening via Zoom, the, the world is changing to, mm-hmm. to some extent. While it's coming back, it's also changing at the same time in the sort of the COVID world and post-COVID world. I'm just mm-hmm. try, interested in understanding what you see on the ground in Singapore in terms of mm-hmm. what you know the post-COVID world looks like, and mm-hmm. I guess how does that differ from say what you know your experiences based on say Malaysia or other parts mm-hmm. of Asia, you know, China, and so on, uh, and mm-hmm. and how the consumers going to I guess react and participate in the broader economy.
0: Yep. So uh, I think in Singapore they, they've got the COVID situation, uh, they, they perform quite well in controlling the the COVID situation. Uh, I hesitate to say that this is always going to be the case because uh, you know just of the nature of the virus where you just need one case and a cluster develop and it can become a problem. And uh, indeed, that is what is happening in Singapore. There was a period of time where there were very low community cases. And recently, there's been a flare of uh, a few clusters developing, which has brought back some of the uh, measures which were previously uh, implemented in limiting the amount of people gathering and so on. But I I would say that the post-COVID world I don't want to say post COVID because I think it's more like age of COVID COVID is not over. COVID is here to stay. Mm I I, I think that uh, there's a lot of similarity with what is happening all over the world. Uh, The amount of uh, online shopping, for example, just to to provide an example, has gone from 5% to 25% at the height of the sort of uh, lockdown measures, and then back down to 10%, which is still lower compared to the height, but it's still like twice where it was in January of last year. So uh, I I think that uh, online shopping is definitely uh, picking up. People have been going online and shopping online and and using online services more. And I I think to a sense that people are becoming more used to living with all these restrictions and so on and and being comfortable with something like this, a Zoom call. So just as a follow up to this, uh,
2: I guess would you say that um, there is a there's room for a hybrid where I think you know the work culture changes a lot you know sixty percent at home maybe forty percent at in the office uh, of less crowding in the offices you know therefore enabling more technology. You know widespread adoption of different types of technology whether it's you know, in the cloud or you know mm. augmented realities or virtual reality whenever they become feasible and, and just create a different type of you know we're moving towards a different world I guess. Yeah. Uh,
0: I, I think the situation in Singapore is quite different because uh, the vast majority of people uh, when you look at supermarkets for example uh, I think the retail floor space per capita for, for uh, retail space uh, in the US is more than 20. Right, um, then Singapore is closer to six. And a lot of the supermarkets in Singapore are actually located uh, at key transportation nodes. Uh. So it's actually part of everyone's daily commute. Right? So it's a very good, uh, if you go to work, for example, or go to school or, or just simply go out, Uh, you will definitely pass by a a supermarket. And it's very convenient to just drop by to pick up something, uh, have your meal, have your haircut or or do whatever. So I think there's a difference there. Uh, Even in Malaysia where um, there there is, uh, unless you're in KL, there's there's no no mass transit system. If, If you like a supermarket, you drive there. If you don't like it, you drive somewhere else. But in Singapore, uh, you you it's part of your daily commute, right? So you you would simply use it out of convenience. So I I think that retail wise, uh, definitely uh, people are adapting, and and there's definitely space for hybrid uh, sort of structure between offline and online. The other example I can share is uh, recently the the CEO of DBS, who's the largest bank in Singapore and I think Southeast Asia, um, they he actually said that. Uh, they are looking to have 40% of their workforce uh, work from from home or, or spend 40% of their time working from home, but they're only reducing their uh, office space by 20% instead of 40%. And they believe that the office space is still important. It's just that it needs to be changed to to foster a more collaborative uh, environment.
1: Chen, uh, shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about tech companies out there in Southeast Asia sure. and also in China. You know, in the in the US, we, uh, our tech companies keep getting bigger and data privacy keeps coming up over and over and again, you know, Facebook and Google and, uh, and Amazon, we keep talking about privacy and kind of this back and forth with the government of how regulations should fit in with this. Uh, how, how, how would you define tech companies and their relationship with the government, either in China or in anywhere in Southeast Asia? Ugh.
0: <laughs> so, I I think in China uh, uh we have seen the stories and so on where the Chinese government tends to be very interventionalist. They they do come down uh, pretty hard. Uh, I, I suppose I can share three stories. Uh, number one, uh it's from Serjing, who who is my friend and ex-colleague at the Monthly Fool Singapore. Um he said that uh Chinese companies serve two masters. One is the shareholder and the other one is the government. So that's one point of view which you can look at. The second one, which is maybe a bit more colorful, uh, one of my friends, uh, he said that uh, for every stock, uh, the, the Chinese government has actually messed with every single Chinese company he has owned. Now he didn't use the word mess. He used a more colorful right, word right. For it. <laughs> But since this is a family-friendly uh, podcast, <laughs> okay. I I will not be dropping any bombs. So, <laughs> but I may have given away the plot. But um, it, it's it's a funny way to describe it. But I can't say that he's wrong, right? Um, on the other hand, you have a a lady by the name of uh, Jenny Lee, I believe, and she's from GGB Capital, and she gave this very interesting point of view. Um, she said that. Uh, Chinese companies, and GGB, GGB Capital, by the way, has been investing in Asia for a long time. And she said that uh, Chinese companies actually benefit from partnering with the government. The government, for example, has uh, built structures for, for uh, 5G, for example. I, I believe there's now 300 million 5G subscribers in uh, China, or more mm-hmm. than 300 million. And, you know, I, I think these sort of this sorts of connection, faster internet are uh, better for companies like, you know, Tencent, Alibaba, and so on. But on the other hand, uh, when it comes to regulation, the Chinese government, in her in her view, uh, tends to take a wait and see approach, right? They they let uh, all this innovation or, or what Andreessen Horowitz calls uh, permissionless innovation, where, where you don't have to ask permission to actually innovate. And this happens for a while and as things develop, then they come in and actually put in regulations. Now, of course, the timing and how they actually implement all these measures tends to be a bit sometimes viewed as heavy-handed. The timing can sometimes look suspect, but generally, I think there's some I think there's some, uh, I, I, I think you, there's some credence to a, to a point of view.
2: Excellent. Um, related to so, uh, just staying with tech companies, one of the things that you know, so if you take a tech company like you know, you're let's say, uh, Amazon, right? Amazon has not paid a single cent in dividends. And just before the show, you were talking <laughs> about how dividends are so important in Australia and in and Singapore, right? You know, people actually look for dividends. Um, what's the? Do you see that mindset in uh, in the tech companies that are coming up? Say, you know, in Singapore and in in other you know, regions of Asia where they have this sort of mindset that the American companies have typically demonstrated where, you know, we are going to pull, we're going to take every cent that we are making from the business and putting it back into the business to try to grow the business. And, you know, the, the free cash flow and the profits are going to come, you know, decades later, and that's okay. <laughs> and the market has been okay with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, is, is that changing or is do you think like, you know, the American companies are going to become more like the, uh, the Asian companies, in that sense, in terms of you know how they have been uh, investing profits or cash flows, let's talk it.
0: <laughs> I I think for the traditional companies, not the tech companies. Uh, so when I say traditional businesses, uh, the banks, the telcos, and so on, uh, share buybacks are quite rare. I, I think uh there is some share issuance, but it's all very uh, tepid, quite quite tame in comparison to to tech companies. Uh, I, I can't speak for for Asian tech companies, because uh, I, I think that uh, you have examples such as Grab, which is I assume not still not profitable, and then you have examples such as uh, Alibaba and Tencent, which are uh, have plenty of free cash flow. So I, I think it, it really depends on the company and, and what they want to achieve. Uh, I, I I guess that uh, it, it's in uh, in the US or not in the US. Uh, I think in the early days, uh, the, the likes of Shopify, uh, the likes of Atlassian, for example, uh, in Australia, they, they actually benefited from this shift of uh, you know, offline to online, where uh, in the early days, you, you could get uh, advertising for really cheap uh, and low prices at, at Google and Facebook. But I, I think in the, in the current environment where, you know, where a Google and a Facebook has already matured, you, you may have to spend more if you want to reach more people.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, speaking of Tencent and Alibaba, uh, you know, huge companies in China, you know, huge ecosystems, huge for digital payments. I know that everybody's, or mo- a lot of people are in China are purchasing digitally. Uh, you've got, what is it? Is it, is it WeChat Pay and uh, Ten- and uh, Alipay? Mm-hmm. Is that true in the rest of Southeast Asia too? Are mobile payments mm-hmm. and these digital ecosystems that are giant, are, they, are those picking mm-hmm. up out there also?
0: Uh, I would say it's definitely picking up, but it's nowhere near the the sort of widespread usage within China and so on. I I, I think that uh, I'm told that and I haven't been for to China for quite some time. But I, I'm told that uh, in China it's it's quite rare that you use cash now, right? So, uh, but in Singapore, I think cash is still very common. In in uh, Japan, it's still very common. Uh, and, uh, but it's changing, right? There, there are more options coming up. All, all the similar trends, which you see buy now, pay later in, after, with Afterpay in Australia. Uh, there's there's uh, virtual banking licenses being uh, uh, awarded in Singapore, four of them. And I, I think Malaysia is looking to do the same. So I, I think it's catching up. It's just not quite there yet.
1: How about Australia, Hanirban? Is it similar down there, Afterpay? Is that just a huge company down there in Australia?
2: Afterpay is a big deal here. Like, I mean, it's probably now one of the largest companies on the Australian market. But buy now, pay later, I mean, has taken off by a storm, right? So that's basically like a firm to some extent. There's, you know, uh, there's Klarna, there's Zippe. Um, Yeah, it's the model is very interesting. I find the model very interesting in that, you know, it's basically just a management of cash flow to buy the jeans. It's basically Mm You you take a mortgage to buy jeans or whatever else you want to buy, which is a very interesting concept. In many ways, you can think of it as a microcredit, right? You're getting little microcredit, and um, yeah, so it's hard here to understand um, what the end game is or how far this thing can travel, right? Um, you know, Afterpay is, is making inroads in the U.S. and has made inroads in in the UK, but you know, so can PayPal or anybody else offer. PayPal is offering the same sort of ideas right now. It's, you know, buy now, pay later. So, but interesting space, I think in terms of how this industry is uh, shaping up.
1: Yeah, perfect. And and Chen, just one more question for you. You know, you, uh, myself and Anirvan, we were all colleagues uh, a few years ago. You've (laughs) now gone on in Singapore uh, to launch Mm -hmm. the Smart Investor. Can you tell us a little bit about about your organization?
0: Sure. So, uh, I think the simple way to understand uh, the smart investor is that uh, we were, you know, the, the Motley Fool uh, decided to exit Singapore. And uh, as they exited, uh, we started to realize that uh, there are a lot of members who were sort of left at sea. And they, they were asking us uh, quite strongly where we're doing, where we're going, what we're doing and so on. And it was a great surprise to us because uh, usually when a service shuts down, there's a... Uh, a lot of anger, uh, understandably, and so on. But uh, what we got instead in Singapore was, uh, I would call it almost an outpouring of love, right? <laughs> and um, I, I think that we are really lucky that people saw us for who we are and not the banner which we are standing behind. And um, that's why we started a smart investor. We, we wanted to help uh, Singaporeans invest. Uh, we, we saw that they, they appreciated what we do, and we thought that we could add value to their lives and their financial lives.
1: Perfect. Well, it's been really nice to reconnect with you again, uh, Chen. Thanks again for joining us here on the Seven Investing Podcast. Sure.
0: Thank, Thank you, for Chen, for having me. Yeah. Thanks, everyone.
1: And on behalf of my colleague and Nirban Mahanti, I'm Simon Erickson. Thanks for tuning to this episode of our Seven Investing Podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are Seven Investing.